If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today's show is special. It is one of our quarterly Ask Dolph Live episodes. This one was a bit unusual because we had a few participants who either sent their question in advance because they were not able to attend or shared their question with Lexi via our chat in Zoom. It's one of the reasons we're now encouraging folks to record their question on their phone if they're not able to participate in person. And going forward, we'll do a better job of verifying if you're comfortable sharing a question for a more dynamic conversation instead of using Zoom's chat function. But of course, anyone can still participate in Asked Off Live and just use the chat function, and Lexi will serve as your voice. But I have to share with you that these Asked Off Lives are still among my favorite episodes. You see, I started this podcast to give back to the nonprofit community that has given me so much over the last nearly 30 years. And I also started it to connect personally with folks who are changing their communities and making the world a better place. So a grateful thanks to each person who logged in and participated in this Ask Dolph Live. Okay, I'm good. Okay. So Dolph, we had one question from somebody who couldn't be here today. And that question is, I was invited to join a board, but they don't have DNO insurance. Is it safe for me to join? Let me give you the short answer and then I'm going to give the long answer. The short answer is no. It's not safe for you to join. It's also not safe for you to join either. But so um, just real quick, though, for anyone who does not know uh, what DNO insurance is, it's a D, an ampersand, and an O, and it stands for Directors and Officers Insurance. And what that insurance does is it covers board members um, if they are sued for decisions that they have made in their official capacity as board members. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what DNO insurance covers 
and what it does not cover. And so it is not your general liability insurance. It does not cover like bodily injury, et cetera, et cetera. But there's some great things that it does cover. Most DNO insurance will also cover your legal expenses for defense if you are sued in your official capacity as a board member. And that's nice because those costs can add up quickly. A large firm defending you could cost 50, even $100,000 or more. Now, the flip side of that is that the insurer will assign what they call insurance defense. So you probably won't get to choose your own attorney, but they're probably going to select an attorney who specializes in the exact type of claim that you as a board or a board member are facing. Now, let me also share with you what DNO insurance or directors and officers insurance is not. It is, to put it bluntly, not a get out of jail for free card. So if a board member intentionally and willfully breaks a law, keeping in mind that's not just like federal, state, and local law, that's also your organization's bylaws, your DNO insurance can look at that and say, okay, well, that was a, a willful decision on your part, and we're not going to cover that. That's an excluded act. So it is still critical that as a board member, once you join, that you uphold the three legal duties of board service. And I talk about these all the time, the duty of loyalty, the duty of care, and the duty of obedience. And if you do those three things and you have DNO insurance, you are probably going to be okay in most situations. Now, a handful of other things I just want to mention while we're talking about DNO insurance. Many Directors and officers insurance policies also include what's called EPL insurance, employment practices liability insurance, but not all of them do. And what employment practices liability insurance does is it covers the directors and the officers and the organization should an employee make an employment claim, whether that's perhaps a wage claim or a discrimination claim or something like that. But again, not all policies have that. I always recommend that you look at your policy and you understand whether or not you have EPL insurance. I believe that every organization that has as many as one employee um, should have EPL insurance as part of their directors and officers insurance. And so um, I just also want to make sure that I share that and then share a best practice with you and a quick story. So best practice, every board should give every board member a copy of the director and officer certificate every single year. How I often like to operationalize that if I'm an interim executive director or an executive director is do that at the first meeting the fiscal year or do it the month that DNO renews. But if you are on the board and you have not seen a certificate of insurance, you don't want a surprise. You don't want to be told, oh yeah, we have it, and then you or the board or the organization get sued, and it turns out that you do not have directors and officers insurance, and I have seen that happen. So now here's the quick story. Years and years and years and years ago, my husband was asked to join a board, and he agreed to join the board, but before getting on it, we learned that they did not have directors and officers insurance, and it was like a hard stop halt, like, oh no, this is not, this is not, this cannot happen. And how we ultimately resolved it with the organization is our household made a contribution to buy directors and officers insurance. It's not that expensive. It's not inexpensive, but it's not that expensive. And so we were like, okay, in order for Frank to be on the board, we are going to pay for your first year DNO insurance. Don't count on this every year. You need to start budgeting for it. And we want to see the certificate 
before he joins the board. So even in our own lives, that's been a hard stop. And we've said, nope, if you do not have directors and officers insurance, we are not, not, not going to serve on your board. Um, That's a great question. Thank you, Lexi, for sharing that one. So we have our next question from Lori. And that question is, how do you energize a board to help raise money? Oh my gosh. Um, That is a broad, broad, broad question. I think there are a number of ways to think about this, but I think the first place to think about it is in recruitment. And so, you know, when we're recruiting our board members, we need to be very clear about what we're looking for in terms of giving personal philanthropy and fundraising. And I just think we've got to be crystal clear. We need to put it in writing. We need to put it in several places. And just like when we're recruiting staff members, we should check in multiple times throughout the recruitment process to make sure they understand what the expectation is and to make sure that not just that they say, yeah, they're going to do it, but they have a sense, an actual sense about how they are going to do this. So that's the first thing. Like, I do believe it starts with recruitment. We've got to find those those prospective board members who are actually interested in fundraising and maybe even enjoy it. So the second is, and I've found this really effective in my own life, both as a board member, as a development director, and as an executive director. Um, I've found it really effective to get an individual board scorecard or as a development director or executive director to provide one. And that scorecard essentially says, okay, here's what you've given up to this point in the year, and here's what you've raised up to this point in the year. It'll do a couple of things, especially if as a board member I'm getting this in every single meeting. It is a constant reminder of how I'm doing on on making progress toward my give-get. But the second thing that it does is it actually helps me ensure that the, the development office's records are accurate. So if I, for example, am getting a list or getting a total amount of what I raised, and you know, let's say it says that I raised $250, but I remember that I solicited my friend Eric for a $1,000 gift and he gave a $1,000 gift. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the executive director or the development director. I'm going to say, I solicited Eric. I thought he gave $1,000. Will you please just double check and make sure he did? And now, now I'm going to get soft credit for the ask, right, inside the CRM or the database. Now the The organization knows that I know Eric and that I can ask Eric again. So it actually strengthens the organization's ability to support my fundraising efforts. But it's a great way to make sure that that you really have clean data for what your board is giving and what your board is raising. The third thing that I always suggest, and by the way, I think I've got templates of all of these. And so we're going to put these in the show notes. I also love individual philanthropy plans. So just like DNO insurance and how at the first maybe board meeting of the year, you want to make sure that that certificate is handed out to all board members. You also want to make sure that all board members complete an individual philanthropy plan. It can be a pretty simple document, often one to maybe three pages long. But the whole point of it is to help your board members outline how they are going to meet their give and how they're going to meet their get. And As I see this, this is the way to help shape the fundraising that they're going to be doing. We have all had this experience where board members go, oh, I want to do a bake sale. Or I actually was the executive director somewhere and a board member really wanted to do a um, buyback gold um, event. Those were really popular about 10 or 15 years ago. And, you know, if, if the ask is, hey, organization, can you please spend a lot of additional time and resources to support an event? 
then that's not really great fundraising for us. And so the individual philanthropy plan is designed in such a way that it only offers options the organization is already doing. Maybe the organization is doing a gala or a golf tournament or an auction. Maybe the organization um, is doing a Benevin model and so needs people to host an introductory event. Whatever way as an organization that you already are able to offer fundraising support for your board members, you put that on the philanthropy plan. You also, by the way, put the give that the or, that the board member is going to do on the philanthropy plan. Not just how much you're going to give, but how are you going to do it? At what frequency are you going to give once a year, and if so, when? Quarterly, monthly, etc. Now, here's the big benefit. Because from my perspective, how we get board members to engage in fundraising is we support them. First, we get their permission to support them, and then we support them. And so the philanthropy plan, they're giving us the permission to support them. And now we can look at it and we can say, oh, okay, they said they were going to sell a table for our gala. Well, tables go on sale next week. I need to reach out to these three board members who are going to sell tables and let them know that they're going on sale and ask them what additional support they need. Or, for example, if as a board member I say I'm going to give quarterly, and it's now April and I've not given yet, it is okay for the development director or the executive director to call me up and say, I just want to make sure we didn't miss your gift. And it's also okay if it goes two quarters and I've not given for the board chair or the governance chair to call me up and say, Dolph, you know, you made this commitment and we just want to have a conversation with you about your commitments. We feel pretty confident that you're going to fulfill, but do we need to revise the schedule? So that's not the conversation that a development director or an executive director should have, but it is the conversation that a board chair or a governance chair should 100% have. Um, I hope I've kind of touched on some things that can really help get your board engaged in fundraising. I, I did want to to clarify with Dolph, you were talking about the scorecards, that, that the scorecards we do recommend showing each board member individually his or her scorecard, not sharing a board member scorecard with the whole rest of the board. But But let me also say something else that we think works really well for some boards, not for all boards, is in an anonymous way, and you can just sort it from, you know, you can sort it ascending or descending to show total giving by board member and total fundraising by board member. Or you could just add the two and go, okay, the total and the give get. And so you're not showing board member names. You literally are just saying like board member number one, number two, number three. And if you sort it in an ascending or descending order, if it's if it's ascending order, number one would be the smallest amount. If it's descending order, number one would be the largest amount. Here's what that does. So the first thing that that does is as a board member, I have a sense of how much I've given and I've raised, and now I see how I fall against all the other board members without knowing who they are. And it is human nature. None of us like to be below average. None of us like to be below average. And so we see that, and it spurs us to do a little bit more. One of, one of the other things, um, and I'm so sorry, Lexi, because I know I'm like, oh, I think I've answered the question. The other thing that that also makes me think about is I always recommend that we celebrate board members who meet their give-get in a board meeting. And so, and so, for example, in each board meeting, you celebrate those board members who met their give-get since the last board meeting. And there's something that that does that's really powerful. So you do one, you do two, you do three, and now you're starting to get momentum. And some board members 
will start to think, well, you know, every time that happens, they think I need to get on the stick. I need to make sure I make my gift and I do my fundraising. So it's another gentle nudge to help them. Now, if you are in the same position that I was in a few years ago, when I was running an HIV housing organization, we were required by federal law to have two formerly homeless clients living with HIV on our board. And we did not exempt them from our give-get. Our give-get was not huge. It was about $2,500. But, you know, if you're a formerly homeless person, $2,500 is a huge give-get, right? But what we would do is we would ask them to make a nominal gift that was significant to them, even if it was a dollar. And then we would ask them to come into the office for an afternoon or two, and we would give them some LAPS donor cards. And we were not giving them $50 LAPS donor cards. Full disclosure, we would give $500 LAPS donor cards or $750 LAPS donor cards. And we would say to them, you, you know, here's a script. You can use the script. You can go off the script. You can tell as much or as little about your personal situation as you want. And so we would often try to get our clients to meet their give-get before the very first board meeting of the year. So the first two clients who we would be recognizing in a board meeting were two formerly homeless clients living with HIV. And this particular board, it had the retired CFO of a Fortune 500 company on it. It had a partner at a large law firm um, on the board. But the two people we celebrated were the two formerly homeless clients living with HIV. And I will share with you, that helped ensure that every board member met their give get. So we do have another question from Candace. How do we convince management that one of us is not enough? So Candace, I love it when people are willing to have a little bit of a conversation first, because I got about 12 questions for you. Um, This should probably be um, asked off so he can ask you lots of questions. That's probably what we should call this. But my, my first question is, what's your lost opportunity by not having another staff member? I feel like I'm not raising money. I, I, I can envision all the things I could be doing today. And then when the day is over, I get to list all of the admin things that I'm doing. And I find it frustrating. I, I, I'll show you, I have been there where like at the end of the day, I start with a list and I've halfway scratched through one part of one thing on the list and it's not all done. So I, I, I totally get that frustration. And what type of a position are you looking to add? Well, I really think I want to start with an admin one. Um, so I am new in this position. Dolph knows this. So I'm a former ED. I'm not good at retirement. So I decided to come back as a development director because that's really my favorite part of the work. And so I've been a little surprised that I get hired and people like my resume and what I've raised. And then I get there and it's okay. So can you learn how to do Excel sheets so we can translate our data to go for direct mail? Or can you do the um, social media? I'm going, you pick the oldest person in the organization and you put them in charge of social media. And though I love the opportunity to talk to people, I'm not talking to people who are about to give us money. Got it. So that that's really helpful. My next question, how have you tried to convince your organization to bring on that admin support for you? Well, I haven't. That's why I asked the question. Um, I'm I'm walking carefully. Um, I do have the advantage that I'm having something called a development assessment done, um, but that's probably six months out. And what I'd actually like to do is maybe get some assistance for some of the activities now. Um, 
because six months is a lot of lost opportunity. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And, and six months from now um, won't be enough time to actually help you in your end of year campaign. It'll be like September, October, and you'll be onboarding someone and it, you won't see the benefit. I get that. So um, based on that, that, there's a number of things that I think about. The, the first is one of my, back when I was a development director, when I really wanted something, my best and favorite way to get it, obviously I'd kind of mention it to my executive director, but then I would also find a major donor who wanted to fund it. And there's nothing like walking in and being like, you know, we talked about this and I kind of mentioned it to Jennifer and Jennifer jumped on it and she loves this idea and she's she's willing to fund the first six months. And by the way, you know, just as a reminder, if we can fund this, here's all the opportunities I can take advantage of. And, and keeping in mind that my time is a lot more expensive than the admin's time. So if my time's a lot more expensive than the admin's time, you know, we're essentially freeing up my time with le- a less expensive position. I'm going to be able to raise a lot more money, probably at least X amount more. And by the way, I've also promised this major donor that that I'm going to provide them with a report about the additional amount that we are raising. And I'm going to make sure that you get a copy of that report because I want I want you and the board to know what a good investment this has been. And I want you to look great with our board. That, so, I mean, that, and, and there's other people who have been EDs in the room. I've been an ED, like, on the Zoom right now. And, and I know if I was an ED, that would be a really, really, really compelling pitch for me. Like, I would be like, yeah, you, you run with this, and I'm looking forward to the reports. Tell me how it goes. Um, so, so that's the first thing that I would think about. The, the second is, it sounds like some of this admin is, it maybe could be done by a fractional um, virtual assistant, and so there's also a way, if you can't find a major donor to fund this, there's also a way to, to stick your big toe in the water. And so maybe to have the conversation, you know, when it's budgeting time with your executive director to say, you know, if I could just get 10 hours a week of virtual assistant support, they would be doing all of this Excel stuff and all of this uh, social media stuff. And then I would be spending 10 hours a week, whatever it is you're going to spend your time on. Um doing cultivation calls uh, or cultivation visits with donors, dialing for dollars, writing grants, whatever it is that you're planning to do to generate extra dollars. And same thing. And, you know, I'm going to track the additional activities that I'm doing in those 10 hours, and I'm going to give you a report on how much more it raises. But my ultimate goal is that maybe in a year's time, we can take this from a virtual assistant to that's part-time, 10, 15 hours a week, to one that's 40 hours a week. Because if I can get all of this administrative minutia off my plate, I am unlocked and I can raise so much more money for you. Does that sound like a compelling pitch? Both of them are. I love both ideas. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have another question from somebody who couldn't be here today. And it is, how do you go about planning and taking a sabbatical? You know, it's funny. I was literally just having a conversation with an executive director about this. Um, and so, like, literally, like, an hour and a half ago, the person had just, has just given notice. I think it just became public today. And they don't have anything lined up. And they're like, I'm thinking about it. And I was like, well, have you thought about taking some time off? And, um, and I know there's different types of sabbaticals. Ideally, a sabbatical is one where you're not leaving your job. Um, so I get that, too. And so I'm hoping this is an executive director whose board has seen the value of, okay, you are currently in this job. You, 
you know, it's time for you to take some time off and come back in three or four months or or something like that. But so as I think about it, I, I think there's a lot of factors that will affect how someone prepares for a sabbatical. So some of those factors I think are like, how far away is the sabbatical? Is it next month or is it six months away? Um, how long is it going to be? A, a sabbatical of a month I'm going to prepare for really differently than a sabbatical that's two or three months long. Um, uh, is there someone currently in the organization that can step in on an acting basis in the executive director role? So that's something else that I absolutely think about. Um, but based on all of that, here are my general thoughts about preparing for a sabbatical. So I, I'm going to assume that it's at least two months, that um, it's at least three months away before the sabbatical happens, and, um, and that there is someone internally who can step into the acting role. And so... Based on all of that, the first thing I would do is I would start meeting every week with the person who's going to be stepping into the acting role. And the reason I would be I would be meeting with that person every week is I would want that person to know the hot fire issues that I'm dealing with so that when they step into the role, they know what they are. And the closer I get to my sabbatical, early on, those meetings are going to be more data dumps. So like, oh, here's what I'm doing. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. But the closer that I get to my sabbatical, the more frankly, I'm going to share in the decision-making because, you know, pretty soon I'm not going to be here and this person is going to be making all of those decisions on their own. And so without a doubt, by the week before I leave, I pretty much want that person already making some of those key decisions. Um, The next thing I'm going to do is I'm also going to put together a playbook. Whenever, and by the way, I love playbooks. I think they're an important part of succession planning. And it's something that I always put together when I do an interim. A playbook essentially is um, everything that you wish you had known the day you started your job. And so so that's everything from things like um, okay, here's here are our insurance brokers and their contact information and our insurance policies and policy numbers, and you know, and and here's when all our insurances renew so that nothing is missed. But also, if there's an emergency and you need to contact one of one one of your insurance companies, you are able to. But literally, it's everything from that to um, hey, while I'm gone, there's you know, we're going to be doing a budgeting process, and here's what our budgeting process looks like. This is what your role is. I'm, one of the things I can put in the show notes is a table of contents of a playbook um, because it really will help lay out everything that needs to be in there. Most of the playbooks I've written are, and this is going to sound like a lot, but are often like 50 to 70 page playbooks. And I've had executive directors um, who have followed me when I've been the interim say to me that that playbook kind of becomes their Bible for the first year. Unlike a sabbatical, really, you should not be contacted. Those executive directors know they can call me, but they typically look in the playbook first and they can almost always find the answer on their own. And it feels better to find the answer on your own, even if you're looking in the playbook, than it does to to call someone and ask them the question. So I'm all 100% about the playbook. Um, so the next thing that I would do if you and your board are meeting, sorry, you and your board chair are meeting on a regular basis, I would start to include that person in those meetings with the board chair. Um, I might, if you've got about three week, three months before the sabbatical, I might start including that person, assuming you're meeting weekly or every other week, six to eight weeks before your sabbatical begins. Same thing, because they're going to be meeting with your board chair. You're setting up the expectation of what that relationship is going to be like. Um, and so I think that's really critically important. Before we talk about preparing yourself for the sabbatical, the last thing that I think about is... Think about a special project that maybe you would like this acting leader 
to work on completing while you're gone. Because, you know, sometimes just operating, okay, that's nice. But maybe if they're in this leadership role, they have a skill set that you could really take advantage of and really utilize so that a big project gets done while you are gone and while they have the mantle of leadership to help them get that project done. So I'd also think about some project that they could work on. Now let's talk about preparing yourself for that sabbatical. Um, because as someone who, who has taken a sabbatical, um, I believe in them. I also want to say uh, kudos to your organization for doing them. Most, organiza- most nonprofits are still not doing sabbaticals, even for their executive directors, much less anyone else. So kudos to your organization. But let's talk about preparing yourself, because I think that is critically important. The first thing I think to do is be very clear with your acting and your board chair when you should be contacted and when you should not be contacted. And so, you know, typically um, life and death situations, you're going to want to be contacted. A facility has a fire or something like that. You might want to be, you know, you probably want to be contacted. But being very clear with those two, when you're willing to be contacted and when you want to be contacted and being clear with everyone else that they should not contact you. All contact comes through one of those two channels um, and really all all staff contact would come through the executive director or the acting ED and then all board contact would come through the board chair. Um, Because what you need to be able to do is to actually take that Sabbath, take that break and step away from your job. Um, The second thing is um, I would really encourage you to plan something big and dramatic for your first week of sabbatical because it will kind of become this actual break in your timeline as opposed to waking up the morning your sabbatical starts and thinking, oh, okay, well, you know, this feels kind of weird. Um, Whether that's even just a weekend trip, but something that's really epic. I also want to really suggest that you approach your sabbatical being focused on experiences and not rigid and focused on achievement. So I have known several people who have taken sabbaticals and have had really ambitious plans for their sabbatical. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to learn to play the guitar. I'm going to do yoga every day at 10 a.m. And, you know, sometimes they find they'd rather watch The Price is Right at 10 a.m. And, you know, sometimes they're like, I'd rather watch Jeopardy than, you know, than work on my book. And then they get to the end of their 10 or 12 weeks sabbatical and they feel like they failed because they're like, I did not achieve everything I said I was going to achieve. And, um, One of my mantras about sabbaticals is no one should feel like they failed sabbatical. Sabbatical itself is a win. It's a success. So really focus on like experiences and being and and kind of set it up for that. Um, The the last thing I'm going to suggest, and this I I still categorize under taking care of yourself, is don't overschedule your first couple of weeks back. I know when I came back from sabbatical, I actually scheduled like a full eight-hour day I had no idea how exhausting an eight-hour day is after, like, after like being in control of my time, where if I wanted to work on a project that required deep thought, I might work for a couple hours and then put it down and go for a run or go for a walk or watch TV or something like that and then pick it back up again. So my first eight-hour day in the office, it was a tough, tough day. So don't overschedule yourself and do yourself an email favor. So have all of your email forwarded to your acting with an autoresponder that says, all of my email, I'm on sabbatical until this date, all of my emails being forwarded to fill in the blank. Um, All of this email will be deleted and I will not read it when I return from my sabbatical. 
If you want me to read this when I return on whatever, October 23rd, please send it to me then. So that way you're not coming back to like 23,000 emails and feeling just a, a deathly crush of anxiety. Uh, is that helpful? Yes, very much. Thanks, Tom. All right. We have another question, this time for sure from somebody who's not here. Um, and it will probably be our last question. I'm new to the world of nonprofits. So what are your best recommendations for me? And this is a person I did need to ask 12 questions to. Because um, that one that one is so really, really tough. Um, I'm new to the world of nonprofits. What are the best recommendations for me? Um, I threw you a curveball. You did. Sorry, you did. Well, no, and, 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 and that's all right. Because part of me is like, besides saying, um, well, make sure this is really, really where you want to have your career, because this is a tough place to have a career. So, you know, you've really got to make sure this is what you want to do, because there, there are a lot easier ways to make a living than the nonprofit sector. Um, so um, I, I do kind of have to throw that one out there. But gosh, I mean, I, I mean, what I think about, and, and I, although I don't think this is exclusive to the nonprofit sector, I, I think this is, I think this is just generally like good career counsel, if you will. I, I know early on in my career, and I still view it this way, I view myself as having a toolbox. And so my first job was at Jewish Family and Career Services, and I was an eager beaver. So like, like I volunteered for everything. And by the way, um, I, I also at the time was working for an organization that maybe did not fully understand exempt versus non-exempt. So no one was that concerned if I worked 60 hours a week, even though I was probably really a non-exempt employee. So I should also, you know, put that out there. But I literally volunteered for everything. Uh, th there was a point in time when we had a staff annual campaign and I was like, oh, well, I'll do the staff annual campaign. By the way, uh, we did some great graphics. This is this is pre-internet, really. So we did some great graphics for that staff annual campaign, including taping a photo of our executive director on the head of a baby in a diaper, and then having a, a cartoon bubble that says, show me the money. Um, staff loved it. The executive director did not, it turns out, but staff loved it. It was a great campaign. Another time, they're like, oh, we need someone to do accreditation. I'm like, I raise my hand again. I'll do accreditation. And I had no idea what I was in for. I literally, like, we produced thousands of pages of documentation for our reaccreditation project. But in every single one of these, I learned so much. And so I would volunteer for everything. And I always thought of it as tools going in my toolbox. So, and, and this toolbox has come with me from job to job. And now that I do consulting from engagement to engagement. And one of the things I love about being a consultant, and I love about doing interim executive director engagements, is that my toolbox has grown exponentially because of it. Because I go into a new organization, there's new problems that I've not faced before. I've got to figure it out. I've got to learn a new skill. I put that in my toolbox. And once again, I, when that engagement is over, when that job is over, I still have that tool in the box and I will use it again and again. So my, that's honestly my best advice I can give. Volunteer for everything and you know, gain as much experience as you can. Awesome. Well, I do actually have one last question then. How can or should a nonprofit restart or re-energize an endowment campaign that started five years ago? How to restart or re-energize an endowment campaign that started five years ago? Gosh, so this is this is not the answer that satisfies my, and this is not someone who's here, right, Lexi? Correct. Okay, because once again, I want I want to ask a lot of questions, but so I'm going to assume this is an endowment campaign that started five years ago and fizzled out. And there's probably been no gifts for quite a while, maybe even years. And so this is not the answer that satisfies you aren't going to restart that campaign. 
Like, uh, you, you can't, like, you can't revive a dead campaign. Once it's dead, it's dead. Everyone's going to see it as dead. Um, what you probably should do is seek out really good fundraising counsel if you're actually interested in doing an endowment campaign and get a feasibility study done. And then make sure that you engage that counsel, assuming the feasibility study comes back and says, yes, you can raise some amount that you actually want to raise for your endowment. You can raise a million, five million, whatever. Um, then, then engage that counsel to help you structure and launch your endowment campaign. And as part of that, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's really helpful to have a fundraising consultant do this for you, is they will then act as your project manager. They're going to act as your nudge. They're the ones who are going to say, okay, we need you know, our board members to make these calls this week. And then they send out a reminder on Wednesday. And then on Friday, they follow up with the three board members who've not yet. And on Monday, they're reaching out to the executive director and the board chair and saying, there's two board members who still haven't. We need to get them to do it and making sure that everything happens in the campaign so that you don't get five years down the road again. And you're asking yourself, wow, why did this, why did this endowment campaign fizzle out? So not the answer that satisfies, but honestly, scrap this campaign and come up with something that's going to work. Thanks so much for listening to this recording of our most recent Ask Dolph Live. Always know that you can reach out to me with questions. Even if the live format isn't for you, you can still reach out to me with questions at Dolph at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Additionally, if you want to know when the next Ask Dolph Live is, it's pretty simple. All you need to do is go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash ask. And if you liked this episode, we will include a link to our prior Ask Dolph Live in the show notes. It's a fun format, so go up to the show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com and check out the link for the prior Ask Dolph Live. Also, while you're online, please take a minute to rate and review us on your streaming app of choice. It makes a big difference in helping others find this podcast. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And just a quick note that I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This episode is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. If that's what you need, please find a qualified, licensed professional in your area that specializes in the specific issue that you are having and get their counsel.